This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Everybody, David Lasondak here, author, fascia specialist, and senior structural integrator at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I could not be happier to share today's program with you. We're bringing on my friend Neil Thies who just released his first book, Notes on Complexity. I think you've seen this book blowing up all over social media. And Neil is a former stem cell researcher, current liver pathologist, practicing Buddhist and practicing Jew. And he's a whole lot of other things too. And his very elegant book about consciousness and science in spirituality is something you don't want to miss in this interview is one of my favorites in a year where I think every interview has been fantastic. But first I want to tell you about our friends at Anatomy Scapes. And by friends, I mean that Rochelle Clausen and Nicole Trobley. Hi, hope you're listening out there. They're wonderful. And they have created a service for all hands-on health professionals. Because you know, we want more than just two-dimensional charts with labels of muscles and nerves and bones. We want something that's going to inform our touch and inform our vision. And Anatomyscape's innovative online trainings bring vibrant, visual, real anatomy understanding to therapists worldwide. And they do this through their Anatomy Lovers e-box. It's a monthly subscription. I subscribe. And every month, I get a research-loaded one-hour course webinar in the Anatomy Lounge. They have a vibrant magazine, an e-magazine that comes out every month, a video that takes you into the lab, and a downloadable and shareable Anatomy Art Card. Uh, This is just an amazing, amazing value. And every month, I learn something a little bit better than I knew it the month before. And that's why I love Nicole and Rochelle and anatomy scapes. And you can save 10% on your e-box. Use the code friends of David, go to anatomyscapes.com and subscribe today. Anatomy scapes. They take the gross out of gross anatomy. Now let's get to our interview with Neil Thies. Okay. Welcome back to another episode of body talk. And today I am so happy to have as our guest author, researcher, friend, Neil Thies, whose brand new book, Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being, should be on every listener's list right now. And I say that with utter sincerity. It is such a beautiful, simple, complex, and elegant book all at the same time. Neil, thanks for making some time to come here and talk with us today. Of course, David. Thanks for asking me to. We've talked about these subjects before, but I was still not prepared for for just the smooth elegance that just moves forward from page to page to page in this book. Uh, it's just quite an achievement. It's Wow. <laughs> That's such a relief. <laughs> a lot of work. Uh, yeah, to get that <laughs> to all into it. 172 yeah. pages. Wait, 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 wait. 175 pages of text. Ah, okay. The rest are just footnotes, which you can ignore. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And I can't say that I understand it all, but it's all understandable. And that's the real trick. Anybody can pile more words on top of words and sound really important, but you just kind of like the best jazz musicians just kind of keep taking more and more away till it's left with just the essence of it. So congratulations. This achievement. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I've written 
science papers before and chapters and textbooks and, and things like that. But writing a book for a general audience is a whole other animal um, and way beyond what I expected it to be. So the learning curve was, was very steep. What were some of the more challenging aspects of having to write for a general audience? Well, you know, when you write a science paper or people are going to read it, whether it's badly written or not, because they want the information in it. And, you know, um, and people tell me my papers are well written. And, and so that's like a nice added bonus. And I thought, okay, if I can do that and get that sort of compliment for a science paper, I can write a book. Sure. And then I started to write it and I realized, oh, no, 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 no. Um, that kind of praise for a paper is because, oh, it wasn't painful to find the information. But I know myself, if I buy a book at a bookstore because I want to be distracted or I want to learn something, um, there better not be any speed bumps in the writing, in the reading. Yeah. Um, you get to a sentence where it's like, wait a second, what did that say? Uh and you, then you have to read it again and read it again. Okay, maybe once or twice. That happens three or four times in a book. You put down the book. Absolutely. Right. So, so you know, my, my husband is a playwright from years gone by, and I watched him write and edit and edit ruthlessly. Um, and he gave me a lot of tips on how to come at it fresh so... I would see it as close as much as possible, like a reader might see it. And the first thing he had me do, I made him go away for a weekend. Um, so I had the house to myself to read it aloud. Oh my uh, God, it was unreadable. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Oh, this paragraph needs four periods. Why aren't they there? <laughs> Why write a run-on sentence when you can do a whole marathon? <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, you know, James Joyce can do it, but... Well, yeah, but <laughs> but how many people today are reading it? No, no, no. I'm a, I'm a Joyce fan, so yeah. No, how many how many James Joyces can exist at any one period in time? No, exactly. I think it's a better no. question. Right, right. Yeah. And so, so the but the flip side is that um, this is material I've been giving talks on to general audiences as well as scientific audiences, to Zen groups, to yoga students. My nephew, when he was in fifth grade, invited me to give the talk to his fifth grade class. Wow. And, um, yeah. And I didn't change the language over the years. I've never changed the language to suit an audience. Um, I just spoke maybe a little slower. <laughs> for <fifth grade. laughs> and um, the it was the last uh, period of the day when they invited me to come in. And the teachers wound up calling all the parents to tell them they were holding the school buses for an hour because the kids were so engrossed with quest follow-up questions. Wow. They just didn't want to interrupt because they, they hadn't seen their kids get so excited before. And so I know how to make the, the work simple. But again, a, a misconception I had at the beginning was, I'll just write down what I say. <laughs> that's not a book either no, it's a different medium oh. it's a different medium yeah. so um it took a lot it took yeah. a lot well the 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 hard work definitely pays off as far as i'm concerned and i was drawn in from the very first page uh, in your author's notes before the formal uh first chapter where you talked about 
um, when you were a kid and that you were drawn to science, uh, the many different sciences that revealed aspects of the world that were normally hidden, but also religion at mm-hmm. the same time. And that you never saw that as uh, having to take make a choice between one or another or to privilege one over the other. And that's that's a kind of, I was going to say duality, but I'll, spoiler alert, I'll call it complementary mm-hmm. uh, yep. rather than duality. But I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more and how, what it was like for young Neil saying, yeah, both these things can coexist at the same time with me. I'm cool with that. Um, well, you know, thinking back, I'm not exactly sure why I landed this way. Um, but I just that view that the two things would be in conflict potentially um, was a cultural view I just didn't really run into. Um, I guess that my religious life, uh, for the first half of my life, it was really um, Jewish practice, devotional Jewish practice, going to synagogue, praying, reading Torah, keeping kosher, keeping the Sabbath, things like that. And... um, and that was the domain of my home. And then there was the domain of my mind, <laughs> which was hungry for the science stuff. And I, I think that really emerged out of a sense of wonder and connection to the world. The moment I say that, I, I the sense memory is being on the lawn and back of the house and feeling the blades of the grass and looking in close and seeing, oh, there's more stuff there than just grass. Um, and then maybe seeing some bugs and running away. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, mushrooms also scared me. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but, but, but there was a sense, a, a, a feeling of connection like that very early on. And I think that turned into my scientific curiosity. Um, and so neither of those things were existing in the world out here that says, no, you can't mix those. Now, at the same time, eventually, you know, I got older and it became clear to me that the world says you can't. Uh, And I remember one Orthodox cousin of mine who was trying to pull me towards uh, more Orthodox Judaism sent me a book, um, Thoughts from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was an Orthodox Hasidic leader at the time, that sort of answered how you could um, bring biblical text into alignment with scientific thought. And I received it and I, I wrote her back a note saying, thanks for sending this, but I don't really need it. And what I said in the note, I remember this very clearly is, um, I have two separate places in my brain for this. And I don't care whether they talk to each other or not. I just keep them separate, which I look back and go, well, that's not very integrative. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, you, you were, you know, that was, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. I I was, I was about 14 and, um, and there was a lot going on in my head when I was 14 about this. Oh yeah. And I was just, yeah. So when I became aware that culturally we're supposed to split them, in fact, we're supposed to privilege the scientific uh, in our culture. Um, then I sort of just, you know, planted my feet and said, "No, <laughs> not I don't. I don't need to worry about this." 
it got much softer as the years went by. Although when I went to medical school, um, I was still fairly observant um, Jewishly in terms of keeping the Sabbath and, and keeping kosher and stuff. Um, that's shifted over time. But classmates would, would argue with me, particularly lapsed Catholics and lapsed Jews. They were really afraid by the idea that I was doing this stuff. And here I am in an Ivy League medical school supposed to be scientific, supposing to be scientific. And um, isn't that ridiculous? And it's like, no, it's not ridiculous. And decades later, it's interesting to me that they all had kids and they all joined churches and synagogues and they've all become high muckamucks in their, in their communities. And I'm like... <clears throat> This is where I've been, you know. So. Oh, well. But it was one well, I had complexity theory that, to my amazement, completely unexpectedly, over the course of, as I remember it, a few months, the walls between those things dissolved. And suddenly I realized that they were not separate. And I got hints of that dissolving as as I worked through the book. I... I had 12 years of Catholic school, uh, so I had religion teachers and science teachers. Uh, some were better than others in both subjects, and I was a rigorous question asker, which is not the most popular thing in Catholicism. <laughs> and you're still rigorously asking. <laughs> Thank you. And I can remember, though, we had, we, we, had, we had a superhero pope by the name of John the 23rd. Uh, who who created sure. who made this great reformation and kind of helped modernize the church much to the chagrin of the older nuns and we have like mm -hmm. some fresh brand new nuns who could have been happy in San Francisco this was the early 70s you know what I'm saying yeah. and um so the school kind of swang politically based on who was uh, in the power positions and I, I had no idea this was going on around me I was just trying to navigate the waters but mm -hmm. I can remember being told that like, well, you can, you can be, we're fine with the big bang. As long as you say it was God who, you know, started the big bang, mm -hmm. you can have both. You don't have to have either or. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. But you made me think of, uh, and I did a little digging here, uh, Ray Bradbury, I'm sure, mm -hmm. you know, yes, the oh, yeah. poet laureate of science fiction. Later yeah. in his life, released a series of poems. And around that time, he said, in the last few years, I find myself returning again and again to the problem of science and theology. I have for some time now thought that the conflict between religion and science was a false one based more often than not on semantics. For when it's all said and done, we each share the mystery. We live with the miraculous and we try to interpret it. Yes, yes. You know, the, the Dalai Lama came out with a book I think like 15, maybe 20 years ago, called The Universe in an Atom, where he talks about them being complementary. And that left me unsettled too, because and by this time I had become a Zen, Budden, Zen Buddhist student and um, uh, and a fan of, of His Holiness and, uh, you know, a side interest in forms of Tibetan Buddhism. And um, I thought, no, that's not what I'm doing here either. And when this arose, the title of my talk started to shift. There were a few years where I was talking about how science gives us one view of the true nature of reality and religion gives us another view of the true nature of reality and that perhaps those are complementary. 
And where complexity took me and where I tried to take the audience by the end is, in fact, no, there's one true reality and we're simply seeing it through different lenses. Yeah, the the, the descriptions are complementary, but it's deeper than that. I, I think complexity reveals a true unity underneath. And the fact that there are these complementary views in our culture, that vanishes too. They are not complementary. They are the same thing the duality disappears for me. The, the Zen cone is I am one with my Tunis. <laughs> but for those of you, for those of you, that, the, for those listeners who were maybe encountering these ideas for the first time, uh, why don't we kind of give a, a quick snapshot of complexity theory and the idea of scale? Okay, so complexity theory is a theory of systems, how parts interact with each other to make holes. So a very simple system would be a clock or a car. And you don't even have to, if you're skilled, a skilled engineer, you don't even have to put the clock together or the car together. You can look at the parts and figure out what's the purpose here and what does it do. And the sum of the parts is precisely the whole. It is a clock, no more, no less. And it is always a clock. And they always fit together the same way and behave the same way. In the 1970s, new kinds of systems were discovered in part because we had computers that could run, that could model systems in a different way. And so chaos theory emerged along with the mathematical geometries necessary to support what was being seen in computer models of chaotic systems. And these are systems in which the parts combine to be something more than the whole, but they do it in a very predictable way. And the computer modeling was able to describe things like tornadoes and hurricanes and whirlpools and um, how ice forms on a freezing window pane. And this is where you get into fractal geometries. And the way, for example, there are recurring geometric forms in the world, like the branching of trees, the branching of rivers, and the right. branching of blood vessels all look the same. You can take a picture of any of these, and if you color it right, you can't tell. You tell someone it's one or the other, and they'll believe you. And one of the special things about fractal geometries is that they are scale independent. So however close in you go, it's the same thing. It branches the same way. Or cumulus clouds, they look like fluffy cotton balls. And if you go in closer, they look like fluffy cotton balls. And you go in closer. And if you're in an airplane, you can fly into one. And it still looks the same as you look ahead of the plane. Complexity mathematically turns out to be those systems where the, the whole exceeds the sum of the parts, but it's always unpredictable. And that's a living thing. That's a very good model for a human being. Yeah, for all life and all the things that living things organize themselves into. And so what complexity theory describes is how cells organize themselves into bodies, how molecules organize themselves into cells, how bodies organize themselves into larger scale structures. With ants, they organize themselves into colonies with food lines and cemeteries and a nursery where the queen ant isn't ruling the colony. She just forms a reproductive function. 
birds organize themselves into flocks, humans organize themselves into villages, cities, neighborhoods, cultures, economic systems, etc. So all these diverse things that we see as alive, as living things, are described by complexity theory. So one of the things I say, I think somewhere in the book, is that for me, the two great scientific theories, if you ask people what they are of the 20th century and now into the 21st, it's quantum mechanics and relativity. Quantum mechanics describes the infinitesimal. Um, relativity describes the, the most vast scales we can imagine. Complexity is the third theory, and it's what describes what goes on in between where we're located. Complexity describes our everyday life, the intuitions we have about the way, way the world functions. And while relativity and quantum ph physics are profoundly non-intuitive, which is maybe why there are 10,000 books written on each one. <laughs> you know, none of this makes sense. So let me try and explain it to you again. <laughs> yes. There have been very few books on complexity. And one of my ambitions is that this, uh, that notes on complexity begins to wake up uh, a curiosity about it in the, in the general culture that has it, that already has happened for those other two. And the thing about it, it is that profoundly intuitive. I think that when you, read the book, one of the things I enjoy when I give the talks, because I see how the audiences are responding. When I, I give a scientific talk, let's say about the interstitium, <laughs> which is how you and I met mm -hmm. at fashion and such things. I'm displaying things in a step-by-step -step fashion so that the entire audience is coming along with me in the same way. And we all arrive at the same point. And if my data is good and it's convincing, at the end of the talk, we all agree on things at the same moment. But with these talks, it's never been like that. And that's kind of why it never got boring. There are light bulbs going on all across the room over different heads at different times at different moments. Some people want some people's two or three or four times, never the same. And it's, it's really just like watching ideas pop. And it's because people have questions, have harbored questions about the world around them or had speculations about how the world is. And as I move through the material, those questions are being answered or people are suddenly making connections they never thought of. And the connections, like you, you asked about scale, the reason the scale question enters into the mathematics of complexity is because the classic phrase is complexity lies at the edge of chaos. So the fractal geometry affects what's going on in the complexity systems, but it's not the entire thing. And the thing that complex systems have in part that chaotic systems do not is that there's always a low-level randomness in the system. So chaotic systems, that's how they modeling uh, weather as a chaotic system is how we do weather prediction now. And it's predictable. <laughs> so we make we, we're pretty good now at making predictions a few days ahead. There's the classic statement about chaos that you can have a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil and it generates a tornado in Texas. And I believe that's the original version of the, the I had to track it down. And if the butterfly flaps its wings precisely the same way, it will always create that same tornado. It is predictably predictable. In, in complexity, there's always a little low, low level of randomness. And so an example would be a food line of ants. 
when you see it from a distance, you see the ants going back and forth between the food at one end and the colony at the other. But if you bend in closer, you always find a few ants, three, four percent maybe, that aren't following the food line. And when I was a kid in my backyard, looking at the ants under a magnifying glass, not burning them, I wasn't one of those kids. <laughs> um, I looked at those ants that weren't following the food line and I thought, you know, I didn't use the language, but it was something like, well, those aren't exactly evolutionarily useful, <laughs> but, but it turns out they are because if you put your foot down in the middle of the food line, it's the ants who are not in the line that rapidly reestablish a food line around your foot. If the food runs out, oh wow, yeah. If these, yeah. if the divergent ants, these divergent ants are the ones that are likely to find a new food source when the other food source runs out. So here's here's a question I had about that. Call them random ants. They they sort of appear to me like the utility infielders can kind of play every position as needed. Well, it's easy. I mean, and, and people want to say, well, poets and musicians and artists are human. <laughs> Adam and the random ants. And they absolutely are. Yeah. But the thing is that there's nothing special about a divergent ant. It's like every other ant. It just hasn't bumped into the pheromone signals that the other ones did. So it's it hasn't its attention hasn't been redirected to the food line. So they're still out wandering, which is useful. So every ant is potentially a divergent ant, and every human is potentially a divergent human. Some make a career out of being <laughs> divergent. Um, you know, but all you have to do is look around and think of all the quote-unquote ordinary people in your life that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm sure it's easy, even just looking back over the last five days, um, a simple interaction you had with someone that was completely ordinary, and yet it shifted the direction of your day, your emotional state. Um, that was a divergent ant interaction. Absolutely. Two ordinary people, but the chances of them coming together in this way was small, and yet it happened. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I've had that happen in a food line, but, you know, a human food line. Right. Right. Yeah. No, of course. Yeah, of course. So, there, so there's nothing special about the ants. Um, so they're not like those all-purpose okay. uh, baseball. Bad players. metaphor. Great. Um, because they're just ordinary ants. This is one of the nicest concepts about complexity that I think is helpful for people. That's in the book, obviously. Um, Stu Kaufman, who's one of the founders of complexity, and um, and the man who who really studied. Um, complexity in biology in, I think, the most creative and deepest ways. Um, he talks about how this low-level randomness, um, if there's too much randomness, you get no self-organization. Sure. Ants that are just going willy-nilly and have no means of interacting with each other with any sort of feedback from each other, um, you don't get a colony. On the other hand, if they they're there's no randomness in the system, then the food source runs out and the ants keep going back and forth because there's no opportunity to change their behaviors. It's machine-like. You need this low-level randomness. And what Stu says is that low-level randomness in each moment of a complex system creates an array of adjacent possibles. 
It's not an infinity of adjacent possibles. A limited range, you know, sort of a shimmering cloud of possibility for what the next moment might hold. And then, in an unpredictable way, one possibility becomes the next moment. And then a new array of adjacent possibles arises. And so life unfolds in this continual exploration of what is possible for the living system and evolves along those lines and through those lines. It's not a machine. Our lives are not predictable. The world is not predictable. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about before with science versus religion, a big piece of that argument is that you know, starting with Copernicus to some extent, certainly through Newtonian mechanics, and then the Industrial Revolution, where we actually made machines, this idea of the universe as a machine, of bodies as machines, became the dominant metaphor. Unfortunately. Yeah, because we're not machines. We're not predictable. We're not clocks. Um, because there's always this low-level randomness in the system. Yeah, I was just on, you know, like every couple of years, uh, the major magazines put out a, like, here's the state of the human body and what we know and where science is going. And I picked up one just a few weeks ago, and it was like, your body is the most amazing machine ever created. Right. And it's like, no, will you stop doing that? Every time right. I mean, we talk about, you know, tissue engineering, we don't engineer tissues. <laughs> um, we cultivate them. I cultivate is a much better word. Yes, we create yeah, an yeah. environment where hopefully we can grow what we want to grow. Right, right. The right conditions. But it's always going to, if it's alive, it will be unpredictable. And, and cells are not building blocks. <laughs> you know, it, it just, that, the, that metaphor per, pervades our thinking about the bodies. And it's in this, these adjacent possibles that the mystery of life really arises, right? Right. So you talked about the uh, part of the problem being with the language that we've been using all these years. And of course, we're, we're going through this tremendous revolution in language, and I see it everywhere on almost every level these days. And, and sometimes it makes me a little bit crazy. But I want to use this to pivot to the cell doctrine, because you write and have spoken about how when we look through the microscopes and we saw these little round contained things with other bits in them, as we learned to stain that we called those cells. And we built this idea that the cells were the fundamental building blocks of life. Mm -hmm. However, you could flip that on its head and say, well, what if we hadn't seen the cells? We had seen the fluid, the interstitium, Instead of all the cells, what if we had had the fluid first? We would have had the fluid doctrine. Yeah, yeah. So what would that fluid doctrine be when you think about that? Um, uh, it's hard to, you know, it's very hard. Um, I, I play with this all the time to try and see the body from that view and, and coming into fascia world uh, from my fluid interstitium point of view. I'm having some really interesting conversations around this kind of stuff with Hélène Langevin and Carla Stecco and Antonio Stecco and Robert Schleip, um, Rebecca Pratt and uh, Laurie Nimitz. We're, we're sort of informally just feeling our way through this. Jaap van der Waal, you know, is, is addressing this in, in many ways. What, how do you, we shift our view from, what 
culturally we have defined the body as and, and learn to see it completely anew without assumptions. Um, it's really hard to do. This would be like beginner's mind in Zen, in a way. It's totally, it's exactly beginner's mind, right? And and that's obviously my language. And the, the where the quote comes from, it's, it's uh, Suzuki Roshi, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, the founder of uh, San Francisco Zen Center. He said, it's almost an exact quote. <laughs> in the mind of the beginner, there are many possibilities. In the mind of the expert, there are few. <laughs> But it's true. It's true. It is. Um, my practice of pathology has, con in liver pathology in particular, has conditioned me to apply that in my scientific practice. Because in liver pathology, the liver can change in only a few ways, very subtle differences from one disease to another. So that if you get a clinical history that tells you it's this disease, and you go in thinking, does it look like this disease? Yes, it does. Confirmation bias, and um, and you miss the diagnosis. So my daily clinical practice is to look at the slide with an open mind and just wander through it, not like a hypothesis-driven scientist, but like a natural historian walking through the woods and seeing what there is, and then putting the pieces together and then bringing it to the clinical information and and coming up with a differential diagnosis. So, how did we get on here? <laughs> I wondered. You were talking about confirmation bias versus exploration. Oh, yeah, oh, fluid, oh, the fluid yeah, doctor. Fluid doctor. Fluid, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, when the microscope was invented, what the technology allowed was to see cell membranes, and the cell membranes formed these little boxes. And the Greeks had argued, is the body an endlessly divisible fluid, um, or is it made up of discrete units called atoms? And when they saw the, the empty boxes of the cell membranes and cell walls under the microscope, if you break a box into smaller pieces, you don't get smaller boxes, you get fragments of edges. So, ah, the body is made up of indivisible subunits atoms, and they look like the empty rooms of a monk or a prisoner, like a cell, a monk cell or a cell of a prisoner's cell, because there's no furniture in them, and so we'll call them cells. And then time went by, and with development of chemical stains, many of which we still use in our clinical practice, they saw nuclei and Golgi. They found the furniture. They found the furniture and filled it in. But cell doctrine had been born. And that when we say Western medicine and Western biology, that's what we mean. The doctrine that all living things are made of cells and all cells derive from other cells. But what if the technology had been different? What if somehow looking through a tissue under a microscope with no special slides and with no special stains, we saw the nuclei first. Then we would have seen these little round things floating in this endless fluid continuum. And we wouldn't know what these little balls were, but we'd go, oh, look, it's an endlessly divisible fluid continuum. And when a few years go by and we develop stains and see cell membranes and cell walls for the first time, we wouldn't have said, oh, we were wrong. We would have said, oh, look, there's semi-permeable partitioning of the fluid space. So the shift is, so at the molecular level, 
There are no cells, just as uh, an ant colony from a distance looks like a thing. It, look, it may be moving. You know, if you see it on the desert floor, a big ant colony ahead of you, you'll see this dark thing, even if it's shifting a little bit. And then you go in closer and you realize it's not a thing at all. It's just ants. It's a phenomenon arising from smaller things interacting the ants. Well, if you move into the ant body or if you move into our bodies at the cell, at the microscopic level, there's no ant there. There's no human body there. There are just cells. And we know that our bodies are 50% bacteria and a few other things. So and without which we can't live, we don't have a human body without our microbiomes. And so at the cellular level, our body is a flock of cells, 50% of which are human, and which we leave all over the place. We touch a doorknob, we kiss someone on the cheek, we're leaving ourselves behind. So, we are a messy species. Yeah, we're so well, but all living things at the cellular level, our boundaries are not our skin, our boundaries are further out. Well, are cells the indivisible subunit? No, we know that they're just molecules floating in water at the right temperature <laughs> that interact with each other to form things like cells. At the nanoscopic level, the cell disappears the way the ant colony disappears, the, the way the ant body disappears at the cellular level. And so then the question is, what about the molecules? Are they the fundamental unit? Well, no, those are self-organizing atoms. And those are self-organizing subatomic particles. And those are self-organizing subatomic something smaller. People argue, are they loops? Are they strings? Are they particles? Are they fields? Whatever. We don't know. We don't know. Um, it's not settled theory. But what is settled theory is that it's not an infinite regress to smaller and smaller things. At the next level down, you are at what's called the Planck scale, after Max Planck, the father of quantum physics. There is a smallest unit of space, of distance, of length, a smallest unit of time. So space-time at that level turns out to not be empty, and it turns out not to be smooth as relativity displays it. It turns out to be this energy-rich field. Now, is that considered granular space-time? Uh, I guess that's a way, that's a phrase you could use for it. Yeah. As opposed to smooth space. -time. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously there's only one space time. So, right. So, and this is the famous problem of quantum physics predicts everything at the quantum scale with perfection. Relativity describes everything at the larger scale to perfection. And yet when you bring them together, you get complete nonsense because which is it? And we're kind of stuck in the middle of those two things, trying to figure it out. And we are stuck in the middle, and this is, you know, complexity theory is not a theory of everything that explains how to bring the mathematics of quantum physics and relativity together, though it might be one day. That's That would be a question that would be beyond me. But this energy-rich space-time at the quantum level, because E equals mc squared, thanks to relativity... Um, that energy occasionally gives rise spontaneously to whatever these tiniest things are. And they often do so in a matter-antimatter uh, pairing, so that, like a positron and electron. And they immediately self-annihilate and become energy again and subside back in. And this coming and going is referred to very nicely as the quantum foam. It's one of my favorite things uh, <laughs> in the book is that we? it's a foam down there at the smallest level. 
And every once in a while, some of these, whatever they are, loops, strings, particles, fields, emerge, erupt from the quantum foam and don't self-annihilate. And then they are free to interact with each other. And when they do that, they create subatomic particles and those create atoms and those create molecules. And the whole of existence springs into existence as a self-organizing system, a complex system from the very bottom upwards. And one of the key, two of the key things here then is number one, there is no materiality. The world is not material. The world at its smallest scales is just stuff coming in and out of the emptiness of space-time, which isn't empty. The book takes that through down to another level, but for now, that's fine. But it, it goes back to that other Zen phrase, the form is emptiness, the emptiness is the form. That's precisely it. And this was one of the aha moments that when I started thinking about it this way, that quote, uh, you just said is from the Heart Sutra. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness ex is exactly form. There's no end to old suffering, old age. There's there's no suffering, old age, and death. No end to suffering, old age, and death. Um, on and on. It's a beautiful sutra. We chant it daily in the Zendo, and it makes <laughs> no easy sense to the Western mind. But from this complexity point of view, all of a sudden, the Heart Sutra was making sense to me. And I talked to my Zen teacher about it, and she affirmed that, you know, I mean, they were these were still, to some extent, intellectual insights, which are not the point. And where we wind up in the book is that it has to come down to experience. My book isn't going to change people's experiences. They're just ideas. But how do you turn them into experiences? That becomes the trick. And I think that we have many spiritual traditions which are really good for that, and we should avail ourselves of them um, in, a in a judicious fashion. But then there came a moment where suddenly it was a direct experience. The concepts had become a direct thing. And this is not in the book, this story. Can you in any way put into words yeah. what that direct experience was like for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it, it kind of hurt to take it out of the book, but it didn't belong in the book. I, I get it. I was walking down the street after I had learned about complexity theory, and I reached it because um, someone I was doing stem cell research. Uh, I was one of the leaders, such as we were uh, back at the turn of the millennium, with the idea of adult stem cell plasticity and that all tissues had stem cells, which is a new idea at the time. And someone said to me, the way you describe how cells are behaving in the body and stem cells sounds to me like how complexity theorists describe how ants form colonies. And so that's how I was introduced to complexity theory. And I started thinking about it in terms of cell behaviors. And at some point during my stem cell work, it was very high pressure, very high stakes, very, uh, it was my first taste of science gone viral. That, that sounds like a bad videotape from the 90s class. <laughs> <laughs> when silence goes viral, volume yeah. two. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, and imagine how what it took in the year 2000 for something to go viral because, <laughs> you know, the, 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 you know, we didn't have TikTok. No, no, so. <laughs> we didn't have Facebook. So, but in any case, I was 
starting at some point to realize, duh, that the cells I'm studying on the slides for my human clinical specimens, and for the time that I did animal work, I don't do animal work anymore, but for the time I did it, the cells I was studying in the mice, these were the cells of my own body. I was studying my own body. The concepts I was thinking of were happening in my body. And it was a very pressured intellectual time for me. It's kind of hard to describe, but just the ideas were were just tumbling over themselves to get out of my brain. I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and have to write things down because I just, it just did not stop and became kind of obsessive and actually very uncomfortable. I wanted it to stop and it wasn't. Um, and it had become a Zen koan. I mean, the, the the nature of a Zen koan, like what's the sound of one hand clapping, to understand the solution to a question like that, you have to become the koan. You have to become the one hand that's clapping. And so suddenly now I'm becoming the thing I'm studying. And there was this moment, I think it was 2002, I was walking down either 19th or 20th Street. I think I've told the story both ways. Um, so now I have to be honest. And uh, It was 19th. Yeah, yeah. And uh, came to the edge of, of Park Avenue, and there was a do not walk sign. So I stood there, and I was going, my cell, is my body the cells, or my cells the body? You know, and just, and um, the light changed, and my leg had become a flock of cells, and I couldn't move it. Everyone else stepped off the curb to move forward, and I couldn't direct my leg to move because it had been become a flock of cells. There was just too many cells to organize. There were just too many. I couldn't, I couldn't. It's because it's not top down. That's another thing. <laughs> it's bottom up, and they weren't doing it. The moment passed, and I kept walking. <laughs> but this had happened, and then sometime later, and I don't really know how long. I I, I think it was probably just a few weeks, but I'm not sure. I was um, responsible back in those days for opening the Zendo for anyone who might want to sit and meditate in Thursday mornings. And that particular Thursday morning, there was no one there, just me. Um, but I opened the Zendo and I lit the incense on the altar and I sat down opposite um, and started meditating. And I was supposed to be doing my Zen practice, whatever it was at the time, but I wasn't. I was stem cells, stem cells, stem cells. Is my body made of cells or my cells make my body? And complexity te theory tells you it's equal. You can't decide. It's not separable. It's both things at once. And I was sort of spinning in that. And, um, and then I looked up and I saw the incense stick on the altar turning into smoke. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, stick or smoke, cells or body, there was no separation. And as the stick was moving into smoke, my cells were moving into body and back and forth. And it was a direct experience. And things sort of dissolved. And then I came back to myself <laughs> and I thought, wait a second, is that the, you know, Buddhists talk about one aspect of the true nature of reality is the emptiness of inherent existence. Is this what the emptiness, what emptiness means? Yes. A full emptiness, you might yeah, say. Yeah. And I went to my Zen teacher in, as we do in Zen, one-on-one -on -one interview, and I said, 
is this what emptiness is? And she said, yeah. And I said, that's all? And she said, well, no one said it wasn't simple. It's just not easy. (laughs) (laughs) And then the moment that opened, then the Heart Sutra opened and interdependence opened and karmic law opened and um, impermanence opened. And suddenly all the stuff of Buddhist metaphysics was mapping to this idea of a complex universe. And then when I turned eventually to Jewish mysticism, same thing. Kashmir Shaivism, same thing. Vedanta, same thing. And I go into those in the book. I, I love that part of the book. I made a lot of notes for the first half of the book. and the second half of the book, I didn't make as many notes because it's like, I need to read this a few more times. And let it, <laughs> but it's okay. the sort of thing that I kept finding myself thinking about after I read it, which is uh-huh. always a wonderful thing. This is leading me to a question. What's it like to be Neil? You speak quite eloquently to this on page 44, where you talk about being on an airplane. I'm wondering if you might like to read that for the audience. Okay, sure. This is my first book reading. We now present Neil Thies (laughs) at his first ever book reading. If you've ever flown in a plane, recall the end of the flight when you're approaching your destination, coming in for a landing. You're still high above the world, but you see it getting closer and closer. You look down upon the rooftops and watch the cars moving like ants along the roads far below. The airport ahead draws nearer as the descent speeds up faster and faster, closer and closer, until that special moment when the plane lowers just close enough to the tops of the building, but not quite among them, and you suddenly shift from being above the world to being in the world. You just slipped from one scale of perception to another, and with the shift, for me at least, the change is visceral. I feel it. Yeah, that's it, where you say, I feel it. So I'm thinking about Neil on the plane, and then I'm thinking about Neil in the lab looking through his microscope. And then there's a knock at the door, and you have to turn from the microscope, and suddenly you see a person that is made of those cells you were just looking at in the microscope, and how, in a certain way, your whole day is changing from scale yes at scale in phase transitions with other humans in the world from moment to moment to moment yes. and that's kind of how i perceive your existence well you know I, it, but it's not just me all pathologists we spend our day this way and and i don't think it's an accident i think i think being a pathologist conditioned me to move across scale and allow yeah. me to then come to this stuff. I don't think in a million years have I gone into a different area of medicine that I would think this way. Exactly. But I've been doing that shift moment to moment, day to day for decades. Who else has that privilege of such an experience? Airplane pilots, (laughs) they do the same thing. They're above the world and then they're in the world. I can't think of anyone else who's paid to do this over and over and over again every day. So that's the conditioning in part that set me up for this. But the Zen practice is also the conditioning. Just be with this moment. Don't assume you know. You know, the past is gone. The future hasn't happened yet. You're just in the present moment. And um, cultivating that practice allows you to see the world in flow. And when, when people talk about flow, capital F, what they're talking about is experience the world as a complex system with all the adjacent possibles, moment after moment, selecting one and then moving on and shifting and shaping unpredictably, always unpredictably. And sometimes what the unpredictability is what allows this is the enormous creative 
adaptations that are possible that create that sustain a living thing from moment to moment and and allow living things to evolve talking about evolutionary history but the thing is that that same low level randomness that allows for that exceptional creativity and responsiveness to change with a changing environment also necessitates eventually with enough time a mass extinction event things die because sometimes the adjacent possible leads to death and inevitably given enough time that will happen and so what makes us alive there's no such thing as uh you know a fountain of youth or eternal unchanging life because we're not machines that that stuff that makes us so rich with creative possibilities necessitates that sometimes there will be partial or mass st- extinction events it's just the nature of things does that give you a kind of peace knowing that having to live in the world right now at this point in time well you know one of the one of the things i realized uh, a young friend of ours was being honest <laughs> with mark my husband and i i'm uh, 26 years old and we're in our 60s and let loose with how our generation has screwed things up and left his generation with so few options potentially no options and how grim this is and how it leads into depression despair anger fear and i thought to myself you know if i don't have something for him in the book then i waited too long to write the book and there's no point you know then what am i actually doing right but yeah why bother you know? Yeah, because we're living in a world of mass extinctions. We're already seeing it. There are mass extinctions everywhere we look. Yeah. There are mass extinctions of political systems, economic economies, certainly species, you know, etc., etc., etc. First of all, there is the imperative from a complexity point of view to always look at every level of scale because from different levels of scale one sees different things. 10,000 years from now, You know whatever we're doing with climate change is not going to extinguish every bit of life on earth. It's not. There's incredibly adaptive stuff and there are things that are held in niches that are resistant to that. Um to those particular changes. 10,000 years from now the world will be as extraordinarily wondrous and beautiful um with the most amazing ecosystems and ex- extraordinarily delicate interactions between different forms of life and species every bit as wondrous as the most incredible coral reef or rainforest it's going to happen it's just going to be different and we may or may not be here polar bears are likely not going to be here etc but life will be here so from that perspective that doesn't do much for my own suffering but no no but something else will arise from the quantum fall right exactly yeah 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 um or in this case you don't have to go down that far from the living things that survive because the dinosaurs got blasted we exist mammals came you know right um our culture depends on there having been the mass extinction of the black plague no one is walking around mourning the quarter of the european community that died during the black plague that give rise to our euro-american culture um because mm-hmm. we don't think about it anymore but our culture is what it is because that happened so there's that but where i 
land in the book in the last page. Um, I realized I had to add this in. This was the last piece that went into the book. I had the grace and difficulty of growing up in the shadow of one huge mass extinction event. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. My father was, we're Jewish, and my obviously, and my father was born in Germany, and my grandparents were killed, and many relatives were killed. And um, I came of age as a gay man in New York City during the full force of the AIDS epidemic. Which was another type of mass extinction event, potentially. Yeah. No, not potentially. It was. It was. You know, I mean, neighborhoods disappeared. And I saw the same thing in both cases. I grew up in a community of survivors, and I knew survivors who were completely broken by the experience. And I knew survivors who were incredibly joyful and able to live in the world with resilience and joy. And during the AIDS epidemic, I knew unfortunately, most of the time, people dying in anger, despair, terrible fear. But I also knew people who died in really profound peace and sometimes even bliss states. So, you know, knowing the principles of complexity theory helps us identify how to modulate things to avoid mass extinction events, our banking system, if we just paid attention to complexity principles, we wouldn't keep having bank collapses, but that's a whole other thing. That's, that's another podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so complexity can help us figure out how to avoid mass extinctions, but it won't always. And here it's too late. We're already in the middle of it. What complexity if you meet it as a, in an attempt to experience its principles, that flow, that state of mind, then it can give you the kind of resilience to survive or not survive a mass extinction event with a sense of meaning and peace. To me, that's preferable. And I know it's possible because I've seen it. Um, so I, I think that's what these ideas offer us in a time of mass extinctions. How do you meet that? Who are you in the face of that? This helps potentially to guide one to some kind of resilience in the face of it. So that's what I think the ideas of the book have to offer my 26-year-old friend. Neil? Thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. Always. Thank you for listening to this episode of Body Talk. Remember to support the show by following the show or subscribing to it wherever you get your podcasts. Likewise, leave a rating. Five stars would be really appreciated and it helps bump us up the food chain. Body Talk was in the top 10% last year. I want to see if we can get even further in 2023, but I can't do it without you. Want to support the show financially for less than a flat white at Starbucks a month? You can do that at patreon.com backslash body talk. Comments, questions, suggestions for the show? Drop me an email at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. As always, the music you hear is by David and the Disasters. Until next time, in this attention economy, if you give body talk your attention, I'll make sure it's worth your time. This is David Lissondek signing off. Until the next episode of Body Talk.